So as I mentioned in the last couple of weeks, I want to begin a new series of studies on the Sabbath evening, what's known as the Upper Room Discourse, covering chapters 13 through 17 of John's Gospel. Again, this section, as I just prayed, it reveals the Savior to us in a really wonderful and profoundly sensitive manner. And the Puritan Thomas Goodwin describes these chapters as giving us a window into Christ's heart. That we look through these chapters and we see our Savior in his tenderness, in his kindness, in his compassion, and his persistent love for his own. John supplies some details that are not covered in the synoptic gospels, synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John here gives some details of the upper room that those other gospels don't cover. Yet you see overlap and you see parallels, but there are some very distinct features, almost like John is adding to what is already known. But of course, when you think of that, we see one who presents the heart of the Savior he knew so well. John is the one who lies upon the Savior's bosom, verse number 23. And now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And so in many ways, when the Spirit of God inspires the apostles, he assigns John to be the one who would so clearly reveal the heart of Christ for his people. Jesus Christ loves his own. Now we have to dig into what that means and consider it carefully. And I believe these chapters will aid us in that holy pursuit. We should also notice though, by way of introduction, that this chapter 13 is the really the beginning of a new section in John's gospel. John actually, it divides very simply if you look at the structure of the entire gospel. There is, if you go back to chapter 1, you'll see uh, what is often referred to as John's prologue. That's chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, the section regarding the Word. In the beginning was the Word, the Word made flesh and dwelt among us, the Word that displays the Father, verse number 18. And that's the, that's the setting of the scene, if you like, by the Apostle John. And then from John 1, verse 19, all the way through uh, to chapter 12, the end of chapter 12, there is, if you like, an extended treatment of our Lord's ministry, but in particular, there are signs, miracles that attest to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Remember, that's John's aim. You see at the end of chapter 29, you can turn there, or so that end of chapter 20, verse 29, you'll see the aim of John's gospel mentioned there, and his purpose again, Going from that verse 29, sorry, verse 30, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. And so there's the emphasis on signs. This will come back later on. John is mentioning evidences that prove the nature of Christ. He is the Son of God and the Christ. And he's chosen deliberately, verse 31, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life through his name. That's the statement of purpose. So John's Gospel, chapter 1, 1 to 18, there is that prologue. Then chapter 1, verse 19, through to the end of chapter 12, there is the exposition of his ministry, particularly with relation to certain signs. Seven of them that exalt the nature of Christ's person and work. Then chapter 13, 
again through to the end of chapter 20, really emphasizes the passion of Christ. John gives the largest treatment of all the gospel writers to the Lord's passion and suffering. If you realize that chapter 13 is beginning with the day before his death, we're going to see all the way from chapter 13 to the end of chapter 20, details regarding the preparation and the passion, the suffering of our Savior for his own. And I think, therefore, in light of that, chapter 13, verse 1, serves almost, if you like, as a heading to this entire section. Having loved his own which are in the world, he loved them unto the end. And by the way, just to finish the structure of John, the last chapter serves really as an appendix to the book. The book finishes in some way, the theme finishes in verse 31 of chapter 20, and then there's, there's an extended appendix uh, regarding Simon Peter and his ministry and future in comparison with John, and that's a different story. But you see it all, it's a very clearly structured book. And so chapter 13 is setting the scene for Christ's sufferings, especially setting the scene in expounding his heart for his disciples. And I do want to walk carefully through this material. I don't want to run. We won't go too slowly, but I want to walk carefully. And tonight I want to set the scene and really just take the time to look at some introductory matters when it comes to this discourse. Where is it taking place? What's the time? And what's the context? Those kind of preliminary thoughts and, and features, the place, the time, and the surrounding activity. So first of all, let's please note the place. Now, I've mentioned already the upper room. Now, you won't see a reference to the upper room here in, in John's gospel in these early verses. But what you see, you look at verse number 26 of chapter 13. Because there in chapter 13, verse 26, there is this reference again to the betrayal of Judas. And it says there, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now that, if you turn back now to Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, you'll see again where that took place. Again, I presume you know this. Uh, just bear with me, and perhaps some of you are not so clear on this. Uh, let me establish it in your mind again tonight. Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 19. And they began to be very sorrowful and to say unto him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said unto them, It is one of the twelve that dippeth with me in the dish. The Son of Man goeth, and is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for that man if he had never been born. Okay, so there you see the situation is happening in John's Gospel. is also recorded for us in Mark's. But where is it taking place? Well, back in verse number 15. He will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared there make ready for us. This is taking place in the upper room. Now, put a finger in Mark 14 and turn back briefly to John's gospel because we need to see the context of this. What's the context in, if you like, in the Lord's ministry when he comes to the upper room? Well, we get the details of that in chapter 11 of John's gospel. Chapter 11 and the verse number 55. And here, if the, the writer is putting this down, he's giving us two connected timestamps. 
Verse 55, chapter 11, and the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand. Chapter 13, verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover. So we're getting that time stamp. But what's happening in John 11, verse 55? The time of the Passover is hand. Many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They're preparing themselves for the feast. Verse 55. Then sought they for Jesus and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple, what think ye that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, he should show it that they might take him. So we see the disciples are actually concerned regarding the Lord going to the Passover because his life is at risk. In fact, risk is hardly the right description. From the human standpoint, the Lord is in danger by going to Jerusalem. And thus we find our Lord arranging the affairs of the upper room as a place for a private meeting with the disciples. That's what's happening here. He's, he's arranging a place where he can privately meet with his disciples in all the chaos and all the confusion of that day. He's setting time aside to talk with those whom he loves. The upper room is there. Now go back to Mark chapter 14 and let me remind you of some things that we noticed in our studies in Luke's gospel. Because what happens in this section is, again, verse 12, and the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover, the disciples said unto him, Where wilt thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover? And he sendeth forth two of his disciples and saith unto them, Go ye into the city, and there shall meet you a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him. Now, it is my conviction that this meeting has been prior arranged by the Lord. He set the scene for this. Again, sometimes we read this, that this man is completely unaware, but by God's working in his heart, he's going to meet the disciples, and then he's going to do all this and this. I believe with all of my heart, this has been prearranged by the Lord. We're not told how or when, but the language points in that direction. Know what it says. Go ye into the city, and not that they will meet a man, but the man will meet them. He's waiting for them. This has been so arranged by the Lord that the Lord understands when they go to the city, this man is to see them, to pick them out, and then approach them. But he is a man bearing a picture of water. And so the Lord has predicted this encounter. It's predicted by Christ himself. And again, it's unusual, we're told, for men to carry a picture of water. We're told often they would carry wineskins uh, by the way of, of transporting such a thing. And so this is a predetermined sign. It's an unusual thing. The man's looking for them, but they will know the right man by this predetermined sign. And what's going to happen next? Well, that man has prepared a place. That's again why I say this has been prearranged. The room is already ready for them. He will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. Now, this man is preparing a room not for some other company, but for the company he expects, namely the Lord and his disciples. And all of that leads us to the conclusion 
that this place has been arranged in the kind provision of the Savior. He has set this up to meet the needs of the eleven. Again, we will look at Judas in more detail when we come to the section in John's Gospel. But he has arranged, the Lord has arranged these things in such a way, not out of fear. He's not hiding here. He is loving his own. He is loving his disciples in arranging this place, understanding their need for an extended time of fellowship and instruction. And thus, in the arrangements of this place, we see something of the Lord that is so very, very precious. He knows our hearts. And he is tender and compassionate to us in all of our needs. And I'm setting the scene here for John 13 through 17. And we're going to notice that in John 13 through 17, we see the tenderness of Christ to his disciples. He knows their hearts. Chapter 14, verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. He sees the deep recesses of their hearts. Understand their unspoken thoughts. Understands their unmentioned emotions. He, he discerns the hearts of those he loves. He answers their questions without frustration, but with tenderness. He addresses those things that are the concerns upon their hearts. He reveals himself to them. He's the shepherd, who, he's the servant, sorry, who will wash their feet. He brings words of comfort to them with the promise of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, who will come and aid them in their ministries. This is our Lord. And just because the Lord is now in heaven doesn't mean he cares for us any less. He is the same Jesus. Isn't that what we're told? The Jesus they saw ascending, they're given the comfort that this same Jesus whom you saw will come back. So therefore the Jesus of the gospel is the Jesus now in glory who will return in power upon this earth. It is this same Jesus. And sometimes we do struggle to have a concept of a living Christ. Our Savior lives. And many times we read the Word of God and we think back to what Christ, and we love Christ for what He was in the gospel record. And that's not unimportant. We, we praise God for His past work. But in his past, we see the present. And we see the tenderness of our Savior. Even in this narrative, we see what is true of Christ now. He understands our frame. And dear saint of God, you may well be a bruised reed or a smoking flax, but Christ knows that. And he's able to minister to you in your need. At times, sadly, there are those who seek to crush us and wound us. Oppress us, but the Lord knows our needs. He is that tender and compassionate Savior. Again, this is somewhat difficult to apply concretely. It's an abstract thing. The Savior's, wait, we can't see him. He's in glory right now, and I'm saying to you, he's the same Savior. Well, and how does that work practically? Well, you read the New Testament, you see that Christ still ministers through the work of the Spirit in the church. As much as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. We, we minister for Christ to Christ's church in this world. 
And so Christ does actively minister to us through the means of the people of God in the church. He can come and nourish and comfort us. He ministers to us, of course, through his word, through the preaching of the word of God. And so if I present to you such a Christ that should stimulate your heart to pray, to pray several things, to pray for me. I have pretty much set the schedule of preaching for the next six months in my mind. Pretty much I know where I'm going to be in June, uh, the Lord helping in terms of ministry. So you say, well, what am I preaching? I'm not, I'm not going to preach. You've got to change your mind. No, but you must pre- pray that by God's grace, Christ will have a word for your soul every Lord's day. He ministers that directly. Not in terms of the past I'm going to preach on, but in terms of the application of the word to your soul that will come as a word fitly spoken directly from the Savior to your soul. You can pray that. That's not charismatic nonsense. That's an understanding of the living Savior who is tender and compassionate to his children. That he'll come and comfort you in his word. You can pray. You can pray, Lord, make use of me. We are intrinsically selfish in the church. Part of our fallen nature they bring into the church is a selfish mindset. Nobody does anything for me in this church. Nobody ever cares for me or ministers to me. The obvious question. Are you willing to minister to others? Are you willing to be that agent of the word of Christ to some soul? Let me encourage you. There are some dear saints of God in this fellowship who we have not seen for several years. They are still in membership. They're in our directory. Have you called them? Have you picked up the phone? We miss you. How are you doing? How are things going for you this time? They're still part of the body, I presume, that if they were here in person in the church, you would go alongside them and say, how was your week? We can be a minister of Christ. His tenderness can be shown through us by those simple acts, a written card, a phone call, some way of connecting with those in the church. Of course, not just those who are away off, but those who are present in the building. A minister, are you willing to be a minister of Christ in this church? Of course, you pray in your need. Lord, I want that phone call. Lord, I, I, I'm the, I need the phone call today. I'm the one who needs a call from my brother to encourage me in the work of God. I'm the one who needs a call from my sister just to, to touch base and to say, am I okay? I need that. I, I, I can't express it, but I desperately need the touch of Christ through his church. This is practical Christianity. But it's what Christ does through his church. He loves his own. We see that in the preparation of this place. Secondly then, please note the timing. The timing. Well, again, we have, two, we have two markers of time in this verse. Now before, that's, that's, a, that's a word of time, isn't it? Now before the feast of the Passover. And then the other marker is this. When Jesus knew that his hour was come. This is again, I say, the time just before the Lord's death. That is the occasion of the Passover 
Again, there are various, I'm not going to deny it, there are various ideas of that to which meal is being consumed when they come to have their feet washed. Again, later on perhaps. But certainly we see ourselves encountering the time just before the Lord's death. Now, if you read your Bible, uh, perhaps on an annual basis, and you go through it chapter by chapter, it's going to take you a week to read from here to the end of John, or just over a week. And because of that, we lose you know, how quickly these events are occurring. This is the night before his death. The night they're going to have the Passover together. Judas leaves, goes again to continue the betrayal. They go to Gethsemane. In Gethsemane, the Lord is betrayed and arrested. He then goes before Caiaphas and the high priest. They then see the trial before Pilate and Herod. And before nightfall the next day, the Lord is dead. That's how quickly all this occurs. Again, just a passing comment. Remember the Lord and his humanity. Here's a man with a true human body and a reasonable human soul and marvel at his grace that he would minister to the disciples at such an hour as this. But there are two things that really stand out theologically regarding the timing. First of all, please note again the reference to the Passover. That's why they're in the upper room. They, they are meeting. That was what we saw in Mark's gospel. Where are we going to celebrate the Passover together? And it's the upper room. But what's the significance here? Well, let me remind you. Turn back very briefly to Exodus chapter 12. Again, you, you understand these things, but this Passover, of course, is tremendously significant to the people of God. And then its first institution in Exodus chapter 12 and the verse number 24, the Lord then gives instruction for the ongoing observance of this ordinance. And ye shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever. And it shall come to pass that when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, according as he hath promised, that ye shall keep this service. And it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? That ye shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses, and the people bowed the head and worshipped. So what's the purpose of this Passover feast? It is to remember. Again, I don't want to go down this line too far, but let me just mention one thing to you. You know the Roman Catholic theology regarding the, the Lord's Supper. That Christ's body is again broken, his blood is shed, like a, if you like, a, a reenactment of the events. When they observed the Passover, they were not reenacting the events. They were remembering the events. The Roman Mass is an abomination. It is not according to the Word of God. The Lord's Supper does not reenact the events of the cross. It is to remember the events of the cross as the Passover was to remember the events of the Exodus. And particularly the shedding of blood. And so, yes, there's a connection here, but this Passover is celebrated to remember what God did as the blood is shed and the firstborn of the Israelites are spared death on that day, the Passover. But then notice, secondly, in the terms of these timings, the hour mentioned here in John 13, the hour. Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father. Bear with me. 
a quick revision from last time. Turn back to chapter 12 and the verse number 23. Never mentioned here, this is a vitally important passage. The Greeks are coming to see Jesus. The Lord says to them, the hour is come. Verse 23, that the Son of Man should be glorified. How does chapter 13 deal with it? That he should depart out of this world. Now that is, that is classic Jewish parlance for death. It goes back to Moses' time. It was time to depart out of this world. It refers to death, yes, and also to resurrection and ascension. But primarily it's referring to his death. He's about to die. The hour has come. You'll see it also over in chapter 7 and the verse number 30. John 7, verse number 30. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him. Why? Because his hour was not yet come. We saw this last time, but let me notice this time that they were trying to take him. But it wasn't time to take him. That time will come. But the idea of the hour particularly focuses upon his death. Then chapter 8 and the verse number 20. Again, similar way. These words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. But now his hour has come. Verse 1 of chapter 13, Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world. The hour here is not referring, again, to a 60-minute period of time. It speaks of divine appointment. God has picked this time. It is God's eternally appointed hour. It refers to the deliberate orchestration of history by God on purpose. And this hour is purposely intended to coincide with the Passover. That we would see Christ loving his own to the end. That having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them unto the end, and the focus of that primarily rests upon his work in dying on the cross, fulfilling all the types and shadows of the Passover. Redemption only by the shedding of blood. This is the scene being set. We're meant to again see these chapters in light of the imminence of Calvary. That we understand the nature of Christ's work. He's dying as a sin-bearing sacrifice. The time, the place we've seen. And thirdly, please note briefly the activity. And there are three things just to note in terms of activity. First of all, note that Judas's act of betrayal has already been arranged. The synoptic gospels make that clear. Again, back to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, and we mentioned the verse number 12. And the first day of, the, of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover, they said, where will we go and prepare to eat the Passover? But look at the previous verses, verse 10. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priest to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray him. So the arrangements for betrayal precede this time in the upper room. And the Lord knew that. We know that, of course, 
Because later on in John's gospel, he makes it clear that he knows that Judas is the one who will betray him. Verse 26, and when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot. He knew, as the omniscient Christ of God, he knew that Judas was the one who will betray him. Now, why, why do I mention that? Well, the activity again is significant in this section. It is out of love for his own that he permits Judas to proceed with his dastardly scheme. He doesn't intervene. He allows the events of history to proceed. Even when you think of the language of the psalmist, even though he feels the pain of being betrayed by his familiar friend, the hurt of a real man feeling the betrayal of his friend, and yet his love for his own supersedes all of that in such a way that he governs his actions to not act for self, but for the well-being of others under his care. That's a wonderful picture of love in the church and in the home, setting aside self out of love for the body of Christ. We see the betrayal. We also see the rejection mentioned here. Again, I'm looking at context here. I'm just, I'm just setting the scene, but I knew if I set the scene, I wouldn't get much further tonight, so bear with me. But the scene is being set. There's rejection here also. Verse number, or the verse number 42. Well, let's go back. Verse number 37, sorry, of chapter 12. I mentioned to you already the structure of John's gospel. Chapter 1 through 12, there is the emphasis upon these seven signs. And it says there, verse 37, But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. Remember that? And then go back again to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verse number 30. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe. You see these wonderful markers? We don't, we don't see this. We read the Bible so slowly, and that's not a bad thing, but we miss some of these markers. We're meant to draw lines between these verses. John's gospel has been written, the first 12 chapters, to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But what happens? Verse 37 of chapter 12. Yet they believe not in him. That the saying of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which is spake, Lord, who hath believed or report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed. Isaiah 53 again. It's a, it's a proof that though the miracles are there, their, their ears were stopped, their eyes were blind, their hearts were dull, and they would not receive the word of God. Now, the emphasis in John's gospel is in the sovereignty of God. He had blinded their eyes. And hardened their hearts, verse 40, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart. It's like Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardens his own heart, and God hardens his heart. But we see in the context a simple fact that Christ has been rejected by his own. Now, before you see that, please note verse 42. There's a wonderful nevertheless. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also, many believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Men like 
Nicodemus, who, when it comes to the cross, will indeed display the fact that he loves Christ more than the praise of men. But at this point, there is that caveat to their acknowledgement of Christ, but there were those, verse 42, who certainly believed on him. And so the Lord is coming to this concluding phase of his ministry, having confronted the reality of widespread rejection. But he persists in loving his own. He does not fail to continue to love his own unto the end. And so in this activity, we see the betrayal and we see the rejection. And that does indeed then set the scene for Christ's love. Jesus knew that his hour was come that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world. He loved them unto the end. We'll come back to this next Lord's Day with the Lord's help. But just think of the disappointment of rejection and betrayal. Think of the impending pressure upon the Lord as Gethsemane approaches. But yet chapter 13 verse 1 emphasizes particular and persevering love. He loved his own. It is personal and particular. And he loved them unto the end. It is persevering. But I want to show you just one thing tonight and then we'll close. Note the words. In the context of widespread rejection, of threats upon our Lord's life, of impending betrayal, the Lord has said to love his own which were in the world. You do not need to wait to glory to enjoy Christ's love. Simple point. One of the simplest things I can say to you tonight. You're in this world. And the Lord is touched with a feeling of your infirmities in this world. He knows exactly what to do to minister to your needs. That's wonderful. But beyond that, as long as you're in this world, you're less than perfect. And yet he still loves you. Isn't that good for your soul tonight? You are so, so far short of perfection. And yet Christ loves you in this world. Rest well upon that truth, dear child of God, tonight. We're going to see and develop these themes upon the heart of our Savior. And I trust Lord's Day by Lord's Day, our hearts will be filled with joy. It is good for our souls to consider Christ's love for us. That is not gushy, liberal sentimentalism. It is biblical doctrine. He took on our humanity that he would love us. And he still loves us and will love us forever. I trust you know this Christ. Trust is not a theoretical experience, but rather something that's genuinely true. You pray to him and hear him speak to you in the word. Well, let's bow in his name as we close this meeting together tonight. Let's all pray. Oh, Lord God, we understand so little of the depth of this. We can use the words of Scripture 
We, we can hear the language of your son taking our humanity and then loving us. But help us to remember that tomorrow morning. Perhaps in some particular trial or difficulty. Remember that even then he loves us in the world. Help us, O Lord, again by your grace to receive the ministry of others and be a servant of Christ to this church and in this world. We thank you for such a kind and tender Savior. We bless you, Lord, for your word. Help us to feed upon it tonight as we pray in Christ's precious name. Amen.